When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. What's up? This your boy Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hello, and welcome to Creature Feature, a production of iHeartRadio. I'm your host of Mini Parasites, Katie Golden. I studied psychology and evolutionary biology, and today on the show, we're going to talk about something totally radical. That's right, my dudes, we're talking radiation. And guess what? I've got a real live particle physicist to talk through some of the big questions about the universe, such as, what is radiation? How does it affect humans and animals? Can birds survive Chernobyl? And what are the raddest, baddest radio resistors in the world? Discover this and more as we answer the age-old question, would you rather get killed by a giant radioactive hamster or killer bananas? So today I'm especially excited because joining us is particle physicist at UC Irvine and co-host of Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe, Daniel Whiteson. Welcome, Daniel. Thanks very much for having me on. I'm excited to be on your Creature Features. What kind of horror name would we give this one? Because we're talking about radioactivity and how animals adapt to it. And I feel like that is, there's a lot of like Creature Feature movies like that, like the... <laughs> radioactive swamp lizard <laughs> i'm not a fan of those movies though because in those movies every single time the scientist is the bad guy so it's always evil scientists can't think about the consequences of their research you know blinded by greed or ambition and ends up destroying the world Right, exactly. As if the scientists just like, I want to make a mega hamster that's radioactive <laughs> and no one can stop me for I am driven by science. <laughs> yeah, that's never been my motivation. I, I take some motivation to get out of bed in the mornings, but it's never mega death hamster. I, I mean, it's not a bad motivation necessarily, but it's not your motivation and I can respect that. Yeah, so, so I am really excited to learn about radiation. I 
No, a little bit. The basics of it, uh, you know, I know it's not necessarily all Homer Simpson at the power plant, you know. That's only 80%, yeah. But there's a lot in that 20% that we don't <laughs> learn from the Simpsons. Mm -hmm. So what what is radiation? Like we think, when we think radiation, we think, you know, nuclear waste, mm -hmm. but it's a lot more than that, right? It is, in fact. And um, the most general way to think about radiation is that it's just energy deposited by waves or particles. Usually when you think of radiation, you're thinking of things like gamma rays or x-rays, and that's a good example of radiation. And those are all just different kinds of light. But, but radiation can be either waves like light or it can be particles like, you know, tiny little bullets like protons or neutrons. But the key thing to understand is that radiation really is like a tiny little bullet because it's depositing energy in your body. And that's not always good. You know, every time you get, you go out in the sunshine and you get warmed up, you're absorbing the sun's radiation. So not all radiation is bad, you know, just like too much radiation is bad or particles with too much energy are bad because they will rip through you like a bullet. So it's a very general term and only sort of parts of it are bad. But, you know, the bad parts get more press than the good parts. And that's something I was going to ask about, because when non-physicists like me hear radiation, we kind of think of like a nuclear bomb or uranium. Mm -hmm. But there's a difference between ionizing radiation and other types of radiation, right? Yeah, exactly. Like nobody says, hey, I'm going to go outside and soak up some radiation. Mm, that sounds <laughs> nice and toasty. Or the radiation I'm looks gonna great outside I'm going to start saying that now, today. though. <laughs> that, sounds, that sounds badass. We'll be like, time to get those radiation rays <laughs> yeah exactly so there's radiation that your body just absorbs and deposits a little energy and it warms you up you know and that's okay usually um, but then there's particles and photons that have enough energy to really do damage and so if you think in like if you zoom in microscopically to your body your body is made out of cells which are made out of molecules and each of those molecules has atoms and the microscopic picture there is you have like a nucleus protons and neutrons and surrounding that are electrons and they're all tied together with various chemical bonds right you have like one atom next to the other one they're sharing an electron for example so what happens when a, when radiation comes in like a high energy photon for example it comes in and it kicks that electron off that's what ionizing means it makes it an ion it removes the electron and that's not good right you had some happy chemistry going on to make your life function and now you have different chemistry which is usually bad, although, you know, sometimes it's good. Right. I mean, you know, our DNA is made out of proteins, which are made out of molecules, mm -hmm. and those can get mm -hmm. kind of messed up. And that's why if you get a really bad sunburn, that's, you know, that is a type of radiation. It's not always good. You go out, you get a little bit of sun, that's okay. But the more sun you get, the more you're actually exposing yourself to UV radiation. And that can actually start to mess with your cells on the DNA level, which is kind of, it's hard to imagine that you can just like start messing with your DNA by standing out in the sun, but that's exactly what happens. Yeah, I think of DNA sort of like as the hard drive for your body. It's like, you know, storing the recipes for everything you need to do. And something comes in and basically flips a bit and says, oh, you were going to have a cup of sugar and now you're going to have a cup of salt. Like now the right. recipe doesn't work anymore because you've screwed it up. And <laughs> right. If my if my DNA is like my hard drive, then there's like a billion screenshots of cute animals on the desktop, <laughs> all unorganized, completely making the desktop unusable. And then UV radiation gets in and then it scrambles all those cat pictures and turns them into like one mega hamster picture. <laughs> <laughs> that nuclear hamster, exactly. Uh-oh. 
<laughs> and, uh, and and although, you know, you should speak to this because it's biological, but sometimes you want that. Sometimes you want a little bit of change, right? right? Like evolution requires mutations in your DNA. And so you want some mutations and naturally occurring radiation from the sky or from whatever, from the ground is part of what gives you that variation. So uh, one way to explore new, new recipes for life is to incur little mistakes in your DNA. And radiation is an important way for that to happen. You just, you want the right amount, you know, you want to be in the Goldilocks zone. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. You don't want to get blasted with radiation, but a little bit, it's not bad for life in general. And we're actually going to talk about that contradiction in the framework of Chernobyl, which mm -hmm. I think a lot of people mm -hmm. are familiar with. It's because it's such a big deal. It's one of the biggest nuclear plant disasters in the world. And it was an awesome TV show. It, yeah, I cannot watch that TV show. <laughs> I, I really should because I've heard it's great and it's at least somewhat historically accurate. But like, it's too sad. Just the idea. It's yeah, I think it's I, I remember reading hospital descriptions of like what was happening to the patients who had gotten this acute radiation poisoning and basically they were, you know, their skin was falling off yeah. their, you know, they were melting from it's just like something I never want to imagine happening to a human. So it's, it's well, uh, in a, it was definitely in the very bad category, but I want to go on the record as saying it was not the fault of the scientists. It was all the politicians yeah. and the bureaucrats yes. and all that stuff. So, and um, I think the show kind of, the show portrays that accurately, right? Yeah. Like they show how, because, um, so for people who maybe don't know, or, or just kind of know very generally, uh, on April 26, 1986, the Chernobyl nuclear power plant in northern Ukraine had a routine safety test that ended up triggering a nuclear chain reaction, which sounds, there's a lot of steps in between, obviously, that I'm skipping over. But it was, there was a lot of political pressure on them to complete these tests, even though it wasn't necessarily safe. And a lot of like basically safety safeguards that had been ignored leading up to the disaster. So it wasn't something that just happened out of the blue, right? That's right. Yeah, exactly. They'd built a very uh, sort of fragile style of reactor because it was cheaper. Um, and then right. they, a, a whole confluence of events uh, led to a spot where they couldn't control the reaction anymore and it basically exploded. It turned it from a nuclear reactor essentially into a nuclear bomb. And, the, you know, the difference between those two is like whether it's a controlled, you have the knob dial to you're just letting a little bit of heat out or it's totally uncontrolled and just taken off. Right. It's like making delicious fries versus a grease fire. <laughs> it's a <laughs> seemingly small difference. But no, it's yeah, I, I think it is it is important that this was not mad scientists gone awry. It was mad politicians trying to save a few cents mm -hmm. on construction mm -hmm. here and there and mm -hmm. until you basically ignored a lot of safety guidelines that you that could have prevented this from happening. And I think something that the show captured really well was the sort of weirdly invisible nature of the of the danger. Right. Like you could be standing near Chernobyl and you wouldn't feel anything immediately. You can't sense the radiation. It's not like it's physically pushing you over or anything. Yeah. Right? You don't feel the tiny little bullets exactly. hitting you, but they are. But they're there. They are shredding you. And yeah. the longer you stand there, the more you get shredded, the more something could change something critical bit in your DNA and end up giving you cancer. Yeah. It's really horrifying. I mean, it's. I think it is sort of something that feels especially relevant now when we 
are facing this the pandemic mm-hmm. which i hate bringing it up all the time but it's just ever present and it, it's when you have something that's invisible you can't see radiation you can't at least not with human eyes you can't see something like uh, coronavirus with human eyes but it's there and then it, when we ignore scientists like i think i now i didn't watch the chernobyl series but i think someone told me about this scene where there's like a scientist in a helicopter with like uh the helicopter pilot and then like the politician and they're like you know he's saying like we got to fly over and show like things aren't so bad or something he's like no if we fly over we're gonna die because we're gonna get it's like well no we don't see anything and it's like it's just like oh my god just listen to the scientists please i'm I'm, i yell that at the screen in so many movies please just listen to the scientists (laughs) it's like every disaster every disaster movie starts with someone being like we don't need to listen to scientists let's (laughs) let's do budget cuts on this this little little device that'll Mm -hmm, save human mm -hmm. lives but Yeah. yeah it's it's been happening a while so what happened when the it actually triggered a, a nuclear chain reaction was a, a steam explosion and reactor core fire released airborne radioactive contamination. So it that is like the yeah, like you said, a nuclear bomb essentially. So it didn't just kill people in the explosion. The ionizing radiation that was a result of the explosion hospitalized 134 power plant staff and firemen and killed 28 like i said in Mm -hmm. the worst way you can imagine it's Mm -hmm. really uh it's a fascinating story but if you are sensitive i would avoid reading these detailed accounts because i when i read it it's just like there were lots of nightmares let me leave it at that so that's in your top five worst ways to die Yes, exactly. I, there's no good way to die, but this is one of the worst ones. <laughs> well, sometime, some other time I want to hear what else fleshes out that top five, but mm. maybe that's too dark Oh, that's a today. good. that's a good question. I've got to say, it's got to be if you're a tarantula and you're getting slowly eaten by a parasitoid <laughs> wasp over, over a, the course of a month when you're paralyzed and it's slowly eating your non-essential organs uh, so that you stay alive longer and and nourish its uh, young longer but so that's maybe the worst one but this is a this is a close second yep yep. yeah (laughs) i'm laughing because it makes me nervous not because i think it's funny (laughs) yeah and one of one of the real dangers of chernobyl which i think a lot of people don't appreciate is it's not just the energy from the explosion or the radiation immediately from the explosion that washes out and then cools off right you have these as you said radioactive contaminants which continue firing little bullets like little bits of nuclear fuel and byproducts of nuclear reactions, those are little atoms that are constantly falling apart. And when they fall apart, they shoot off little particles, neutrons and electrons. So it's like, you know, distributing billions and billions of tiny little automatic weapons all over the earth that are constantly just shooting. And they went up into clouds and floated across the earth and into Europe. And it was, it's a huge tragedy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in the following decade, uh, there were all this increase in cancer deaths. So it was like in the 10 years following it. And the number is probably higher than this, but at least 14 radiation-induced cancer deaths occurred and there was an increase in childhood thyroid cancer near the area. But of course, that's just recorded cases. I feel mm-hmm. like it's very likely there were more that just couldn't be traced to Chernobyl. 
Uh, and so the Chernobyl exclusion zone is a thousand square miles, so that's 2,600 square kilometers, where radioactive contamination is high and access is restricted to people because it's it's still dangerous. Like you can't, you still can't go. It's less dangerous than it was 30 years ago, but you still can't like go in because, like you said, there are still these things like releasing these this ionizing radiation that can still get in your body and start knocking around your DNA. Mm -hmm. I wanted to talk about that, that concept of free radicals, which is like, I think, uh, tossed around a lot, like this idea of like a free radical entering your body. And I, I hear a lot of stuff like someone's got some pomegranate juice and they're like, this is going to fight free radicals. And it's like, well, what, what does that even mean? Like what is free radicals and what are, antioxidants and what does this have to do with radiation so free radicals actually sounds like a fun thing like hey man like free radicals dude totally tubular like but it's basically as as i understand and correct me if i'm wrong but it's just an uncharged particle that has an unpaired electron and it's it wants to find another electron mm -hmm. yeah exactly like an atom is really stable when it's got all the electrons that fill a shell right electrons don't sit on top of each other. They like fill up this ladder of energy levels that surround the nucleus. And, uh, and, and there's specific shells, like there's two electrons in the lower shell and then uh, larger numbers and larger numbers. And some atoms are really stable because they have a complete shell. So they're like completely block the charge of the nucleus and they're totally balanced. And other atoms have like a few electrons hanging out just to pass the edge of that wall. And if they don't make a complete shell, it's very easy for those electrons to interact with other atoms. And so, for example, when an oxygen molecule, which is O2, splits into two individual oxygen atoms, they have these unpaired electrons and become unstable free radicals. And they're always going out there to try to find something else to bond to. Right. And that actually happens naturally in the human body through the process of converting food into energy. So getting like introducing free radicals into the body can be through your environment but it can be during normal processes and that we actually have we produce antioxidants to counter free radicals naturally so we have this system of like okay so you you know we'll be splitting these oxygen molecules in the course of producing atp converting food into energy and but as long as we have enough antioxidants that basically are these little guardians that protect us from the free radicals, we're okay. So Yeah, and you know, sometimes as we talked about earlier, these free radicals can be produced because of radiation, like a high energy yes. photon comes in and it knocks off an electron, which otherwise would have made a really nice cozy shell for your molecule, and all of a sudden you have a free radical. And so that's another one of the dangers of radiation. Right. And the reason that free radicals are dangerous, it's similar to like what we've been mentioning earlier. It's that they're basically careening around, disrupting your proteins and lipids and DNA because they're trying to find an electron that will, you know, like you were mentioning, create that complete shell. Uh, it's like, you know, I need an electron to complete me and I'm going to take it from wherever <laughs> I can find it, even if that means like messing up your DNA. So antioxidants actually work by giving free radicals that much needed electron mm -hmm. to balance them out. But the problem with giving an electron is that then you can become 
a free radical yourself because then you become unbalanced. But the antioxidant can actually spare that and remain stable. Uh, and it so it can like say, hey, like don't bother Mr. DNA like right. or Mrs. DNA. Like come to me. I have some electrons that you can use and I'm not going to go crazy just because I gave you an electron. They're like the paramedic of the chemical world. They're just like going around putting out fires everywhere. Exactly. Or like a trained lifeguard versus someone who doesn't know what they're doing, like <laughs> saving a drowning person. Because if you go and just try to like save a drowning person, they'll like pull you under. That's but true. a lifeguard can go out with a buoy and be like, hey, you know, I can I know how to help you without us both getting dragged under here. So if you don't have enough of these antioxidant lifeguards, you can actually, you know, that's when bad things happen in your body. So you can actually get free radicals, not just from radiation, but from pollution, cigarette smoke. So when you have that imbalance of too many free radicals and not enough mm -hmm. antioxidants, you will suffer from what's called oxidative stress, which can play a role in many diseases, anything from cancer to Parkinson's to Alzheimer's, you're basically messing with your body's molecules at that atomic level. And that is naturally that can cause a lot of problems yeah. for your body and is implicated in a lot of diseases and conditions. None of those diseases are on my top five favorite ways to die either. Like they don't <laughs> sound pleasant. Yeah, what would, like, I guess my favorite way to die would be to be eaten by a giant radioactive hamster, but, you know. <laughs> would you then gain that hamster's proportionate strength or whatever? I don't know. I think it would gain my strengths, <laughs> like my organizational abilities, because it eats me, right? Isn't right, that how exactly. that logic works? Yeah, in, in comic <laughs> books, at least, you know. Right. Comic book physics and biology is totally divorced from reality, but it's fun. <laughs> no way. You you lie. <laughs> Um, yeah, and, and and people also should understand that like radiation comes from all sorts of places. It's not just Chernobyl. Like Chernobyl, very bad, very dangerous. Right. But there's radiation everywhere. Like you're getting radiated right now because there are trace what? amounts right now. Yes. I mean, oh God. <laughs> well, you know, p totally pedantically, you're listening to this podcast. This podcast is coming to you through acoustic waves. That's radiation. That's not going to damage mm -hmm. you. It's not going to blow right. off. It's any not electrons. ionizing radiation, right. right? But there is yeah. ionizing radiation right now, like from the sun. You get UV radiation from the sun. There are cosmic rays. These particles from space come down with really high energy and create these like showers of basically bullets um, and they can hit you and then there's radiation from the ground there's even radiation from bananas like bananas have potassium I, in them i knew bananas were up to something <laughs> see that's this is why you don't trust a banana i don't trust a banana no i'm definitely on the anti-banana side of uh, of that big yes. political discussion yeah. yeah, no, I'm very anti-banana, and now I have confirmations yeah. uh, bananas have... Wait, so why do bananas have radiation? Well, they have potassium in them, and the potassium is radioactive. It decays, and so it, you know, very gradually shoots off, you know, um, positrons. And I see. If you eat a banana, then it's like 1% of your average daily exposure to radiation comes from a banana. But wow. you know, if you took like a truckload of bananas and you tried to drive them across the border, then, you know, at the U.S. ports, they have radiation monitors and wow. they were like, hold on a second. Are you smuggling in 10 kilos or 10 tons of bananas or is that a dirty <laughs> bomb? You know, and what's the difference really between a banana bomb and a dirty bomb? How many how many bananas would it take to kill someone? <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> There's so many ways to kill people with bananas. I mean, you lay them out flat so they're slippery. You just drop them on the person or you right, just surround them. Right, but I mean, them. through radiation, like, <laughs> like, sure, you could drown someone in bananas. But I mean, like, through radiation, like a million bananas, would that do it? A billion bananas? Yeah, I think if you spent a day with a billion bananas, that would seriously increase your cancer risk. So that's officially okay. not recommended from the physics right, point of so view. So one day, a billion bananas, <laughs> writing that down. No reason. But you know, <laughs> if you take an airplane trip, that's a lot more radiation because this radiation that comes from space, it's mostly attenuated by the atmosphere. The atmosphere is like a huge blanket that protects us. But you go up in an airplane, there's much less atmosphere between you and space. So like flight attendants and pilots, they get cancer a lot more than other people. Yeah, I, I didn't really think about that, but that makes total sense. So if you fly in a plane, you should not eat bananas, <laughs> not only because the smell is offensive to me, but also it's bad to compound your radiation. Unless you're, you know, hoping to create the mega hamster death monster, I in see. which case I see. You, know, you should eat a lot of bananas and fly in a lot of airplanes <laughs> in order to eat bananas. Right, exactly, yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, so when we get back, we're actually going to keep talking about Chernobyl, but we're going to talk about how animals are affected by Chernobyl. Because even though there are all these signs and fences and all these signs in Russian that tell you to stay away because it's very dangerous, animals don't pay attention to signs in Russian. They, they just go right ahead. So we're going to find out how these animals have been adapting to Chernobyl. Can't wait. Since antioxidants are so great at protecting your body from free radicals, should you start taking antioxidant supplements? Well, it's good to have a varied diet, rich in nutrients that have antioxidant properties such as vegetables, fruits, nuts, legumes, and more. But you have to be careful with supplements, vitamins, or any product making big promises about its antioxidant benefits. Unless you're planning to live in space for a while, or somewhere else you'll be exposed to high amounts of radiation, you can probably get plenty of antioxidants from a healthy diet. You also want to eat a variety of healthy foods so you can get different types of antioxidants that help your body in different ways. I know it's the boring, not fun answer, but supplements unfortunately have not been found to be able to do the job of these healthy habits. Research has been muddled and there's been no clear evidence showing that antioxidant supplements do anything to help prevent disease such as cancer. Additionally, taking antioxidant supplements is not without risk. There are some studies indicating that taking too much beta-carotene from supplements may increase the risk of lung cancer in smokers, and too high doses of vitamin E from supplements may increase the risk of stroke and prostate cancer. So unless you've been directed to take these supplements by your doctor, your best and safest bet is to eat healthy fruit, veggies, nuts, and so on. I know, I'm not your mom, I can't tell you what to do, and I'm being a total nag, but come on, eat a vegetable. Here comes the broccoli train, toot toot. When we return, we're going to talk about some birds who have managed to adapt to the Chernobyl exclusion zone. Is it because they eat their vegetables? Spoilers, no, not really. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. 
Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual-wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. It's no secret that I admire birds. They're audacious, adorable, feathery little dinosaurs. And while they can be spectacular survivors, they're simultaneously vulnerable. Noise pollution can interfere with birds' abilities to find mates and communicate. Pesticides weaken and kill off birds in great numbers. Deforestation and drought is radically impacting many species of birds. Some of the most iconic and endangered bird species are being impacted by humans in surprising ways. Endangered California condor chicks are being killed by litter that their parents mistake for food to feed them. Birds face a lot of challenges, primarily from humans mucking around with our environment. But sometimes birds are able to overcome seemingly insurmountable odds, such as the deadly contaminated wasteland of the Chernobyl exclusion zone, turning radioactive lemons into lemonade. I want to preface this by telling everyone don't go and take Instagram photos near Chernobyl. I, I think is that's like good advice, right? That is good advice. Yes. Don't do anything near Chernobyl. Eat bananas, take photos, walk your hamster. None of that stuff is a good idea. Right. Exactly. There was like a brief trend and I feel like this was probably overblown, like probably only a couple people did it. And then it was like, oh, it's this big trend. Mm -hmm. But still, some people went over to Chernobyl and took like Instagram photos because of the TV show. It's like, but didn't you watch the TV show? <laughs> well, I think, again, it's a testament to like the weird, invisible nature. Like if you sneak yes. in there, you don't get shot immediately. You don't die immediately. You don't feel it. Your skin doesn't crisp up or anything crazy. Right. Um, and so you just feel like, oh, it's probably fine. But it's it's like playing like time-delayed Russian roulette, right? Maybe you'll go and you yeah. won't get cancer, but maybe you will get cancer in 10 years and you'll never know if it was because you ate that banana or went to Chernobyl. 
it's time delayed invisible Russian roulette with like thousands or millions of tiny bullets. <laughs> <laughs> but animals, they are happy enough to play Russian roulette, especially if it means escaping from humans. Mm-hmm. So researchers have been checking out like what's been happening in the Chernobyl exclusion zone because again, because humans can't live there and poaching is very restricted because if you go and poach there, not only is it like ecologists want to restrict poaching, but for people's health, like if you poach an animal that's been exposed to radiation, guess what? You're exposing yourself and whoever you're giving the animal to also to radiation. Mm -hmm. It's not, you know, you once that animal eats something that has like some radioactive contamination, then the animal is contaminated. And then if you eat that animal, then you're contaminated. So That's it's right. not because these things last a long time. They're going to be there for decades or thousands of years, depending on the on the element. And also they spread like one little atom shoots off a bullet. It can hit another atom and then make it radioactive. Right. And so right. it's not just something where it's just like the poison dilutes eventually, you know, it just keeps firing bullets. It really is weird because it is similar to a virus. Now we're talking about mm-hmm. actual molecules, actual like on the atomic level. It's not like a it's not a virus, mm-hmm. which is, you know, a a bunch of molecules that has formed into basically a, a structure that replicates, but it is it it behaves in a way that is somewhat similar in that it can create basically it creates like quote-unquote offspring Mm -hmm. radioactive Mm -hmm. particles so you can think of it as like propagating itself so you know we don't we don't count that as life i don't like there's a lot of debate about whether we even count viruses as life but it is interesting when Mm -hmm. it's like you don't think of particles as being able to propagate or have offspring but they absolutely can (laughs) no that's true particles turn into other particles and atoms can trigger the same reaction in other atoms Um, i've never actually thought about whether um, you know a particle is alive but some people a lot of people ask us questions on our podcast like what's it like to be a photon you know if you're traveling the universe (laughs) at the speed of light what is it like and and it's a fun philosophical question but totally unanswerable Um, Yeah. I mean, it's the the question of what life is like. It's still like, you know, the argument is still stuck at like, well, virus isn't technically alive or is it? You know, so it's it's kind of a it is a tricky question to answer. I think it's 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 one of those things that I think science and philosophy sort of like butt up against where it's like at a certain point, it becomes a philosophical question, not a scientific one. But yeah, it is. I would say like in terms of like it, biologists would say like, no, particles are not alive. That's, that does not count as life. But <laughs> Well, I agree with biologists on that one. But, <laughs> but I feel like some of these questions, you have to wonder like, what is the point of asking the question? What are you trying to get at? Because, you know, are you really learning anything? It seems to me a lot like the Pluto controversy, like is Pluto a planet or a dwarf planet? Like it doesn't change anything about the universe if you give it this label or that label. So what does it matter if viruses are called alive or not? In the end, it's an artificial distinction. We can argue about how to apply it, but we don't learn anything by deciding one day that we're going to call them alive or not. You know, it's all, we're all one anyway. It's all one, <laughs> one big quantum field oscillating okay, in the universe. Okay, you hippie. All right, <laughs> settle down. No, but I think it's true. I think it's true. I think that it's, if you can think, if it helps to think about a particle as having a personality, it's, that's fine if it helps you learn about it. Mm-hmm. As long as you realize, like mm-hmm. when I say a particle wants an electron, it's not wanting it in the same way that a human 
wants a donut, but it, it maybe the way that it acts like a human that's ravenous for a donut is similar where a human will knock down boxes and like shove people through aisles to get to that donut and a particle that needs an electron will do the same thing. So if those if those kind of uh, comparisons help you understand it better, it's that's good. But just, you know, particles don't necessarily want stuff or do things like a, a human or even a, an animal does. But what is interesting is how animals have been adapting to the Chernobyl mm -hmm. exclusion zone. And again, I think it's when we think about adaptation, sometimes it's easy to think about it in human terms of like you you personally can adapt to a tough situation by making decisions like, you know, everyone's adapting to staying at home right now. But if you're an animal and you're adapting, that doesn't necessarily mean that you, the individual animal, is within your lifetime adapting to something. So right. these birds that have been studied are adapting, but not necessarily within one bird's lifetime. So these researchers have been collecting feather and blood samples from a variety of bird species within the Chernobyl exclusion zone. And they found that the birds that have been living in areas with higher contamination actually have more antioxidants to fight free radicals than they encounter that that they will encounter in the exclusion zone. And so obviously, like we talked about before, having those antioxidants is really important if you are, say, living in an area where you're going to get this high dose, relatively high dose of radiation. And so what the confusing thing is that there may actually be a evolutionary benefit to these birds that are actually in the higher contaminated areas versus the slightly lower contaminated areas. So in a study published in 2014, mm -hmm. it's called Chernobyl's Birds Adapting to Ionizing Radiation. Researchers found that oxidative stress and DNA damage decreased as background radiation contamination increased within the Chernobyl zone, which sounds really counterintuitive. And this, again, another, another preface here, that doesn't mean you should go bathe in radiation. That doesn't mean radiation is good for you. And this happened after several generations of selection, yes. right? This is like, these are the ones that survived, found some way to benefit from this situation. This is not like all the birds that wandered in got some boost. This is not your new spoth treatment. Right, exactly. So these birds are going through adaptations, meaning birds with higher levels of antioxidants are surviving and those who don't have those are dying off. And you, a human, are going to be in that dying off category. And, and when birds die of radiation poisoning, do they have the same horrible effects? Is it like in the top five ways for birds to not die, to have their feathers fall off and stuff? I mean, I can't speak to what it's like to be a dying bird, but I it, it affects basically all animals' bodies in a similar way that if it affects humans, unless you have some natural resistance mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to it or evolved resistance to it. So that the result of this is where it's like the birds in these like higher contaminated areas is very, it's like, well, wait, so they're getting higher doses of radiation. Why are they actually doing better than birds that are in still within Chernobyl, but in lower contaminated areas. Mm. And so that's a, it's kind of a conundrum, but what could be the reason for this is if you're in an area where it's like 
more binary whether you live or die. So if you don't have those really high levels of antioxidants, that high level of protection, you just die. Whereas if you're in a slightly lower area where you live long enough to reproduce, perhaps, but you're kind of not as healthy and you like eventually do die, then you may not necessarily be pressured to actually have those those really high level of antioxidants. So like if you're a bird and it's like, okay, I'm getting, I'm in like this really dangerous zone. I only live long enough to reproduce if I have extremely high mm -hmm. levels of antioxidants, mm -hmm. like en enough that it's almost like overkill, that it's really protecting me. But you know, if you're a bird and sort of the, it's still not good, it's still not a great area to live in, but you can kind of get away with not having those high levels long enough to reproduce, maybe overall you're not as healthy because you're kind of like, you're just kind of squeaking by and you, you don't actually, you aren't being as quickly, like the evolution isn't working as quickly on you, the, the, that selective pressure of the radiation. So you're, it's like, well, I, I managed to have babies and now my wing is falling right. off. But right. like, so it's, it's kind of counterintuitive, but a result like this doesn't mean, oh, radiation is good for animals. Right. It just shows that complex process of evolution, especially when you have this short period of time with an incredible selective pressure mm -hmm. That is something we don't really see very often, which is an immense amount of radiation that would not normally happen unless we had right, which a reactor turned on meltdown. very suddenly. And isn't there also a cost? Like the reason you have these antioxidants, which can you know put out the flames of your radiation or your you know save your drowning molecules, to use your analogy, must come at some other cost. Otherwise, all animals would have it all the time. Yes. Right. Yeah, yeah, it actually comes at the cost of production of types of melanin. So a lot of birds will want to have these really, well, again, not necessarily want to, but they have these vibrant colors, they have a lot of melanin production. And if you, they actually have to trade off that melanin production to have that high level of antioxidants. And not having that melanin can affect their health and how they socialize and like sexual selection as well. So you're absolutely right. It's not like, hey, why don't we all just like get huge amounts of antioxidants so we right. can live right next to Chernobyl? It's a very complex thing and one that researchers are still trying to figure out right now. So this is like one result of a bunch of studies that are trying to figure out like what is going on with these irradiated birds. <laughs> we right. don't know necessarily. Right. And so the in the region where the contamination is sort of lower and the birds that don't have these protections can survive, then it's still a disadvantage to have all those protections because it comes at all these other costs. Right. Yeah. Right. And I think, and now this is me speculating, and I, I, I'm not sure, but I, I do think I, I saw that there is a higher incidence of albinism in birds hmm. in this area, which would make sense because if we're talking about melanin production being affected by antioxidants, well, that may be protecting them from the, the radiation somewhat, but being albino as an animal is not always good for your survival. It makes you more visible to mm -hmm. predators. So it's like, that's why we don't see a bunch of like, you may see an albino squirrel once in your lifetime, but it's hard to spot them because they actually get picked off pretty quickly because they're so visible. Mm -hmm. So if you're a bird and you're, you are subject to being preyed upon by other, like other birds or 
say like the the fox and the wolf populations there then you don't necessarily want to be like hey look at me i'm like i'm i look like liberace and it's great <laughs> that's right every one of these mutations has lots of other side effects you can't just like turn one thing up or down and evolution's not one dimensional it's not like okay no. today we're selecting for radiation tomorrow we're doing it for color it's all or nothing like you're either living or dying yeah, evolution is not character creation sliders, unfortunately. <laughs> but wouldn't that be great? <laughs> I'd like some more hit points and some more wisdom. <laughs> um, I think the cool thing about this, the mutations that create um, protection against radiation is where do those mutations come from? Maybe from radiation, right? So it's like <laughs> radiation is triggered protection against radiation. Right. It's so like meta. Radiation's really running a racket here. Then <laughs> <laughs> it's making money Oops. on both sides. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's like that old Gary Larson cartoon where it's like a brick thrown through someone's window, and there's a little note on the brick said, "Bricks through your window, call one 800 <laughs> Oh, I miss Gary Larson. But it's a, like a bunch of tiny invisible right. bricks, and the That's window right. is your yeah, DNA. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Again, I want to reiterate, like. You might think like from this one study, like, oh, is radiation good for animals, a good selective pressure? No, that's not not something that you can conclude from that. And there's been a lot of research, a lot of debate amongst conservationists how animals are actually doing in the exclusion zone. So you might hear stories about how animal populations are actually increasing mm. in the exclusion zones. And like there's a study published in 2016 in Frontiers in Ecology and the Environment that found large mammal populations. So like gray wolves, raccoon dogs and boars, their populations are actually slowly increasing in the exclusion zone despite the contamination. That doesn't mean that contamination is good for them. It means that humans are even worse than radioactive <laughs> contamination. It's that our lack of presence there is enough of a boost for them to basically have an increase in their population, even though I bet now, you know, I I'm not a nuclear physicist, I, but I bet if like they had that area without the radiation poisoning, they'd be doing even better, probably. But you need the radiation poisoning to drive all the humans away. Mm. And so, you know, overall, I mean, it sounds like you're making the argument that overall it's a net win because you, <laughs> you damage the animals, but you damage the humans more. It's sort of like radiation treatment for cancer, right? You kill the tumor. Um, and and uh, we're the tumor. We're wow, exactly, that's cynical. We are the tumor <laughs> in this situation. <laughs> I mean, I think I, I try to take a somewhat human positive perspective where yes it's true that the radiation is keeping us out i think that the lesson we should learn from this is not oh let's blow up a bunch of nuclear reactors so that we have these animal conservation areas i think it's that oh animal populations are so resilient if we just gave them some more space and that it without the radiation imagine how good they do like it's it's they are very they're very resilient, but they need just a little bit of help to bounce back after like all the shenanigans we're basically doing as humans. It's amazing to me how rapidly they can respond, you know, that that to immediate, like dramatic, short timescale um, catastrophes, they can come back and they can mm -hmm. thrive. 
You know, we imagine like very slow climate change edging a population towards having heavier coats or thinner coats or taller or shorter. But also if you have a, enough diversity in your population, even a shock, right? As long right. as some of them survive, then they can thrive in that environment. It's, it's incredible. Yeah. It also, it t tells you about the importance of diversity, right? Yes, exactly. And the importance of genetic diversity, which I think is something that it's like we think about uh, biodiversity in terms of different species, mm -hmm. but it also means like diversity within a population. Right. So if you start to limit their genetic diversity, they can't adapt to these shocks because they just don't have a big enough genetic library to have, you know, an offspring that's like, hey, I've got like a billion antioxidants, come at me, radiation. Because yeah. it's not, as you said before, it's not really adapting. It's not like they're like, okay, here's the problem. What are we going to do about it? It's just like some of us die and some of us survive. And that's it. That's the ad adaptation, right? So if you're a monoculture like corn is, then you got right. no chance, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'd love it if like there were bird scientists with their bird lab coats, like with a whiteboard and they're going like, okay, what do we do? Like, here's the situation. Unfortunately, that's just not the case. It's I, the I case. love it. That's, that's my head cannon birds, bird scientists trying to make antioxidants, but well, then you might enjoy, no. you know, that there was an opportunity for dinosaurs to save themselves mm. because the meteor that came and wiped out the dinosaurs, it made a near miss past the earth about 10 years earlier. They could have seen it in the sky. Wow. So if those dinos, if those dino scientists had been, you know, on their game, they they had enough warning to do something about it. Well, you see, the problem though was that the top dinosaur scientist was a T Rex, and <laughs> he had these little half rim glasses, and he was trying to reach the blackboard, but his arms were so too tiny to make it. It's like, like. Professor Munchie, we can't see your writing because your arms are too small. And then he got mad and ate all the students. And yeah. then, you know, yeah, yeah. Well, that cleared, that cleared the, you know, that cleared the playing field for mammal scientists. So here we are. Exactly. Little, little shrew-like animals with lab coats. Exactly. We could actually type up grant proposals and submit them. And that's why we survived. That is adaptation right there. You may be wondering, if birds can adapt to high levels of radioactive contamination, why couldn't humans? Well, technically we might be able to after many generations and many deaths, and of course that's not even speaking of the quality of life, which doesn't sound so great and is one of the many reasons it's important not to contaminate the planet with radiation. The thing about humans is that we've got a trick up our sleeves when it comes to selective pressures. Instead of adapting our bodies through trial and error, which means a lot of dying, we can use our huge, ungainly brains to build society, science, medicine, and ideas that can help save our butts. For instance, sunscreen. The sun attacks us on a daily basis with pesky UV radiation, and instead of waiting to evolve some hippo skin that produces a thick sweat which acts as a natural sunscreen, we just create our own out of zinc, and it comes in fun fruity scents. So when people talk about humans evolving or adapting, I wouldn't necessarily count on our survival by waiting around to evolve a set of gills or some kind of internal radioactive shield. It's going to be our ability to cooperate, our pro-social behavior, and scientific discoveries that saves us. Or, you know, we could steal DNA from organisms that actually have their crap together. We'll discuss whether that's even possible when we return. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. 
the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. In almost every apocalyptic movie, the heroes are gritty, war-toughened people with robot arms and nine o'clock shadows and spiky shoulder pads. But in the event of an earth-blasting apocalypse, we're not necessarily the most likely animal or living creature to survive. So let me introduce you to a couple of organisms that are definitely gonna kick Mad Max's sorry butt. So Daniel, I imagine you've actually probably heard of tardigrades before. I have, I love tardigrades, they're amazing. I, I, I thought you would like them. So we've actually talked about them on the show before, but I'm gonna go even more in depth on these incredible little, they're also called water bears, they're also called moss piglets. Mm-hmm. They are, they have adorable names and I think they look <laughs> super cute too what i mean have you seen one like really zoomed in it looks sort of like a horrible monster i mean but a cute one they're like a little (laughs) gnocchi with eight legs with hooks on each leg and a little like whole Mm. buzzsaw for Mm. a mouth i I think that's cute well you know when they evolve into like actually literally bear-sized objects Mm. on the moon and then come down and take over i'm going to come and ask you if you think they're cute I mean, they'll be our overlords, so I'll say yes, obviously. (laughs) You'll have to. (laughs) (laughs) You'll have to. It's the law. So they are one of the toughest little animals in the world, and they are animals. They're teeny tiny, and it's hard to sometimes like think of these like really, really tiny microscopic organisms as being animals and not like bacteria or something, but they are animals. But how so, small are they? I mean, are we talking like really microbe size? Are we talking that you could like see one on your fingertip? You can almost see it with the human eye if you have really good eyesights like if if you had a really big one and you had it like in a dish of water maybe you could see like the tiniest tiniest speck but i think typically you can only see it under a microscope so 
they are about 0.3 to 0.5 millimeters long, which is 0.02 inches. And I think that's kind of hard to visualize, like what that's like. Mm -hmm. So if you imagine like a grain of salt, I think four or five of them could stand on one side of a grain of salt. So they're they're small. <laughs> I'm imagining them like literally hiding behind a grain of salt, like ducking behind <laughs> you, a grain of salt. You move a grain of salt and then you zoom in on them and they're like, hi. <laughs> We're just hanging out here. <laughs> smoking. They're all smoking cigarettes behind the grain of you salt. Tardigrades oh, are supposed to be in class. What are you doing? Oh, no, yeah. it's the principal. <laughs> That's our new TV show we're pitching, right? Tardigrade Elementary School. Exactly. Tardigrade oh, high tar school. baby, tardigrade babies, and they're they're in high school. Yeah. Love it. <laughs> I may Love be it. one of the toughest animals in the world, but you broke my heart. Netflix, shovel us some cash. We're making that show. Yes, please. <laughs> so they are found all over the world. They're found on moss, lichen. They're found in soil, dead leaves, sediment, and water. Basically anywhere that they can have just like even a little bit of moisture, they can be found. So they're also found in extreme environments like hot springs, under polar ice, and boiling mud volcanoes, which aren't actual volcanoes, but it's just like boiling, churning mud as like these hot gases erupt and like this mud comes out. But they can be there if they want. Seems, seems like a fun place to be, like a, a little tardigrade spa. So they like moist environments, but like I said, they can basically survive if they can retain a little bit of moisture and they can also survive being dehydrated. So they can live through environments that should kill them by turning themselves into living mummies. So they are actually capable of self-embalming. So they, they desiccate, they dry themselves out. And then the problem with turning yourself in to a mummy or freezing yourself is that you will explode your cells, <laughs> like you'll damage your cells. So like when you're when you're frozen and then it's not the freezing that necessarily kills you, it's the thawing because as you thaw out, these ice crystals form in your cells and basically they're like little shurikens that explode your cells. So that's right, bad. Because ice gets bigger as it freezes, right? Yes. And so the cell wall that can't get bigger, it's frozen and so, right. yeah. Right, exactly, exactly. So you explode. <laughs> that sounds bad. That's that's definitely on my list of, of top five ways to not yeah. die. Yeah. So if uh if Walt Disney's head really was frozen, like you know, it's probably fine right now. But if we tried to thaw it out, like is this some internet conspiracy theory I'm not aware of? Walt yeah, Disney's head? yeah. P there's like a theory that Walt Disney froze his own head. Like uh, <laughs> I don't think it's Wait, true. Froze his own head, like. Chops his well, own no. head off, puts it in the freezer. Yeah, that would be that, that would, would be, be funny, amazing. like like a chicken that got its head chopped off exactly. with just enough time exactly. to like get your head swap in, in, in a freezer. new head or something. <laughs> <laughs> Tardigrades have found a way to not explode when they are thawing after being frozen, and also to survive being dried out and extreme temperatures. So they will cover their internal cells, organelles, and membranes in a special sugar gel called trehalose, which is, it's basically like this, this material that keeps it from getting frozen, from getting overheated, or from getting dried out. And so it works to such a great extent that labs have revived tardigrade samples up to 40 years later. 
and there are reported samples of dehydrated tardigrades that were taken from like 100 year old museum moss mm -hmm. and and successfully revived but i don't know if that's been able to be replicated or if that's just kind of an apocryphal story but it's maybe <laughs> it's pretty amazing and you know yeah. tardigrades are also unusual because they're one of the few animals that are on the moon right now that's true didn't we we left some behind right we crash landed the israelis mm. sent a lander up there with some tardigrades on it and it crashed and so it like there are literally tardigrades <laughs> on the moon we don't know what they're doing they're probably frozen <laughs> but you know right a little bit of maybe like a comet hits the moon or a little asteroid mm -hmm. with some water in it and you could have mm -hmm. Momentarily yeah. living tardigrade colony. Tardigrade colony. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. From which to launch their eventual invasion onto Earth, right? Exactly. You've given them a foothold. I like to imagine they're all Matt Damon's in that movie. <laughs> uh, what was that movie called? The The Mars one? The Martian. Matt Damon's on Mars. Martian. I thought it was called, uh-oh, Matt Damon's on Mars. <laughs> That's what I call it. But yeah, a bunch of little Matt Damon's like making potatoes out of their own poop. But yeah, that, that'll probably happen eventually. So they can they can potentially survive being on the moon, at least for a while. So they can survive temperatures of down to negative 458 degrees Fahrenheit, which is negative 272 degrees Celsius. They can survive temperatures up to 300 degrees Fahrenheit, which is 150 degrees Celsius. So, you know, if we tried to do that, we'd die. <laughs> I would certainly die, yes. Even though they are super extreme, they're technically not extremophiles because they can merely tolerate extreme environments and not specifically thrive in them, oh. which I think is kind of a silly distinction. Like, oh, okay, you can survive like 300 degrees Fahrenheit, but you're not extreme enough for me. <laughs> well, you know, science is filled with these silly distinctions. You know, you're a planet, you're not a planet, you're an extremophile, you're just totally awesome and crazy. Um, scientists are just like middle school cliques. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I love scientists. But it's sometimes, sometimes a little bit. Mm -hmm. So despite the fact that they're not technically classified as extremophiles, they can actually survive the vacuum of space for up to 10 days. So... In 2007, researchers exposed tardigrades to the vacuum of space and then they reeled them back in. Again, like note, they didn't have tiny little microscopic space suits for them to wear. They were just like floating out there. And over two thirds of them were revived. So two thirds of them survived, the majority of them. And they were pissed off probably, right? They were super <laughs> mad. They're like, dude, bro, what, what the hell? Well, I have a question. Like when you do experiments on animals, you always have to get some sort of like you know, ethics reviewed. So like, is this suffering mm -hmm. you're doing to this animal going to yield some valuable science? Does that also extend to tardigrades because they are, as you say, little animals? Like, Probably. I, I would imagine it does. Hey guys, I actually looked this up after recording. It turns out most invertebrates are excluded from animal research ethics laws, which define animals as vertebrates. What the heck? Well, this mindset might be slowly changing. In 2004, the National Health and Medical Research Council of Australia changed their guidelines to include cephalopods such as octopuses and squid. Anyways, I was surprised to learn this. Now, back to my conversation with Daniel. While it's true that insects and probably tardigrades, as much as I love them, can't really... It's not that they can't necessarily feel pain, but they don't... They, their brains are so simple that it's hard to know, like, 
what suffering is to them. Like they are at that point, they're kind of like little robots and like we subject robots to all sorts of things, <laughs> which may be bad. Maybe the robots and the tardigrades are gonna like form an alliance and like stick it to us horrible humans. But yeah, I, I actually do think, I'll, I would have to check on it, but I do think you do have to still go mm -hmm. through that process because it is an animal, it's a living thing. You might not have to do that with bacteria because it's bacteria and nobody cares. Right, <laughs> right, no, exactly. My wife kills, slaughters bacteria by, you know, 10 to the nine every day in her experiments. But tardigrades, they are animals. So somebody out there is like, you know, thought about what is it like to be a tardigrade? And uh, hey, maybe, I hope it's fun until you get shot at into space as part of an experiment <laughs> at least. Yeah, and unfortunately, actually, of those that survived, many of them did die soon after, but mm. not before they were able to reproduce. So evolution calls that a win. Yeah. Like evolution yeah. calls that a success story. That's 100% success right there. Right. And so the reason that I bring up tardigrades is not just because they're awesome at space and cold and getting dried out, but it's when they're in space, like that's full of radiation, right? Absolutely. Like, you are getting bombarded, like you were saying, with cosmic rays from the sun. You're because you're not protected by the atmosphere. That's right. The sun pumps out a huge amount, of course, of light, but also just of raw particles. So protons and electrons streaming out at crazy high speeds. It's called the solar wind and it's pretty dangerous. So a astronauts, for example, when they go up into space, they get a big dose of radiation. And, uh, and sometimes it's, it, it fluctuates a lot. So the sun can just like have a big solar storm and pump out enormous amounts of radiation that would kill you almost instantly. And so in the International Space Station, they have a special room that's, that's lined with extra protectants. So when a solar storm is coming, they basically run to the basement, you know, like in oh, Kansas wow. with a tornado and hide right. in that specially protected room. Otherwise, they're almost literally toast. Oh my God. That's, I'm surprised that Hollywood hasn't like picked up on that <laughs> space station panic room that's the second netflix pitch we came up with today <laughs> <laughs> quibby get back to us <laughs> no but space is filled with radiation absolutely we are safe here under our atmosphere but out there in space is a dangerous environment yeah but for tardigrades they actually have a surprising defense mechanism even when they're in space and when they're exposed to radiation so tardigrades have a protective protein that shields them from radiation damage from ionizing radiation amazing it's called damage suppressor or desup which sounds like hey desup <laughs> <laughs> sounds like a really cool like hey i can survive being radical because i got desup <laughs> so it is a protein that serves as armor to the tardigrades dna so it's thought that it maybe acts as kind of like it's similar to antioxidants in that it can absorb free radicals, but it is different in that it like actually kind of clusters around the DNA and actually forms a literal shield. So the result is that tardigrades can withstand many times more ionizing radiation than other animals. They can actually tolerate almost a thousand times more gamma radiation than a human. Wow. Like an amount of radiation that when pumped into a human would kill kill us like within a couple of weeks like the the tardigrade could actually survive and and so you're saying it acts like sort of a physical shield it's like repels it absorbs and repels the radiation it's a pretty recent discovery so i think some of the evidence is that it's actually absorbing 
these the the free radicals and, and the radiation so it's like okay you're trying to get an electron and mm. then it just like absorbs it do you think it makes it like a pew sound when it bounces off <laughs> it just bounces off <laughs> it could it could it, i think it does seem like beyond just acting as an antioxidant mm -hmm. is it, it is actually forming a physical shield okay. that prevents it from getting to the dna because it's so it's like clustered around the dna rather than just like floating around and acting as like a a lifeguard it's just forming this cluster around it so i we don't we shouldn't just be jealous of tardigrades although it is a natural response because they are the coolest animal but they the discovery of dsup may actually end up helping humans sometime in the future maybe mm. the distant future mm. who knows but human kidney cells were engineered to be able to produce tardigrade DSUP. And those cells in studies actually suffered about 50% less DNA damage caused by x-rays compared to cells without DSUPs. So again, that doesn't mean we can just like get a syringe full of tardigrades and inject it and now you're like immune to radiation. Like it's, it's a lot of steps between creating a kidney cell that can create this this protein and actually having a human who can create this protein in your body that protects your body from radiation. But it's really cool. It's like a step in that direction. Well, that's going to be important when we eventually have to rise up and overthrow our tardigrade overlords, right? So it's good that we, <laughs> we get started now on this kind of science project. That's true. That's true. Or when we're kicked off Earth and we have to colonize another planet <laughs> that doesn't have a great atmosphere. So we need some resistance. Yes, yes exactly. Exactly. But yeah, it'd be, it'd, it'd be great. Like if we could give, say, astronauts like th this DSA protein, mm -hmm. like get their cells mm -hmm. to produce it, like it would offer them protection, maybe not from a blast from a, a solar wind, but like the because like their cancer risk is probably higher For sure. than, you know, the average earthbound human For sure. because of all of the radiation they're getting. But yeah, it, it's it's again, it's not like we're not like a year away from having tardigrade human hybrids, but it's it's a cool it's a cool discovery that maybe eventually we could figure out how to introduce this protective protein to our own DNA. And it must have some cost, right? Like tardigrades manufacture this thing to protect themselves, but it must right. cost them energy or slow down their DNA replication or something, right? Isn't there a cost associated? Yeah, and I'm not sure because this is a relatively recent discovery, I'm not sure what like what the cost mm -hmm. is but usually if they're if it's something that it seems like well this ha seems to have you know countless kind of benefit like there could be some cost but it could also be tardigrades are really interesting in that they are capable of a lot of horizontal gene transfer so they can collect they steal a lot of dna essentially and so it may be because they are able to steal and like borrow so much DNA that they can have this like too good to be true defense mechanisms mm -hmm. that in terms of human evolution, like if we tried that kind of shenanigans early on in our evolution, the way that our evolutionary path has been, it may have just ended up hurting us more than helping us. So it's like something where, yeah, there may be a cost to say like an animal like a human that there isn't a, like that cost is not as bad for the tardigrade. And so if what's interesting about like trying to engineer this for humans is that we can potentially try to take the benefits and then mitigate the costs. But that's really hard. That's something yeah. that takes probably decades <laughs> to figure out. Time to get started. 
Time to get started, everyone. Time to get cracking. That sounds like a great grant proposal right there. <laughs> Tardigrade human hybrids. It'll take a while, so we better start now. Preparing for 2050. <laughs> so before we go, I feel like we can't end the podcast without at least mentioning the baddest, raddest radio resistor extremophile, Deinococcus radiodurans. Have you heard of this bacteria? I actually have heard of this because my wife is a microbiologist here at UC Irvine. And so she's a big fan of the microbes and uh, and what they can do and the amazing things they can do with all their extra copies of their DNA. It's, uh, it's yes. pretty clever. Yes. Now, did I pronounce that oh. right? Can you get your uh, wife to <laughs> let me know? I have no expertise in pronouncing bacteriological names, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm like, you know, I learn it from reading, so I don't know. It sounds right <laughs> to me. But it's also nicknamed Conan the Bacterium. So that's that's pretty cool. Maybe that's what I'll call it from now on. I think it likes on, to go Conan by the its, its nickname, yeah, especially yeah. at parties. Yeah, exactly. So it is one of the toughest bacteria in the world and probably one of the toughest living organisms in the world. So it is a spherical bacterium that usually travels in groups of four, kind of clustered together. So it looks like a little lucky four-leaf clover. And uh, so here's a question that I actually have for you. So grays is a unit used to measure radiation, right? There are lots of units to measure radiation, but sure, yeah. When we use units, it's like only useful like when we think about it in terms of how it's relative to another thing, right? So mm -hmm. like we're so for now, I'm going to use this unit because it's the only unit I know about, and it's what I'm going to use to compare these things. But it's kind of arbitrary that I'm using this unit. It's just like like here's a unit to demonstrate how tough these bacteria are, but the the fact I'm actually using this like is not significant at all so and these units are, these units are all interrelated like a gray is equal to 100 rads and a rad is a radiation absorbed dose which means like 100 ergs per gram it tells you like how much energy is being absorbed by your body right and they're all like i think grays was like named after a a, a guy that like made it the a discovery right so it's it's not like because when I saw grays, I thought it was like, oh, is it like G rays, like gamma rays? But no, it's just like named after a guy <laughs> named his last name was Gray. What's up, G Ray? Hey, D Sup. Hey. <laughs> yeah, this is just their nicknames. Like gamma radiation is actually just a guy that went by like G Ray. Hey. But yeah, so I'm just using it kind of like just to give a frame of reference. Okay. Um, so. A human exposed to about five grays of radiation will typically die within a couple of weeks, wow. Chernobyl style. So tardigrades, which we just talked about, can survive around 4,000 grays of radiation with some damage to its reproductive capabilities, which is kind of nitpicking at this point because they're still alive. Yeah, exactly. The conan, the bacterium, or D. radiodurans can survive around 5,000 grays of radiation with almost no ill effects. Amazing. So that's a thousand times about what a human can survive. And when I say what a human can survive, I imagine if you're getting like five grays of radiation, that means you die within two weeks. Less than that means you're probably going to get cancer within the year. It's not you're like... You're miserable for sure. This is not the happiness yeah, index. Yeah. Yeah, survive is a loose definition of survive there. So 
The D. radiodurans, or Conan the Barbarian, can also sometimes survive up to 15,000 grays. So that's 10,000 times more than a human. Now, when I say sometimes survive, it's like uh, it sometimes doesn't. Right, <laughs> so it's yeah. like, but but sometimes it can survive that. So the fa- like, if you got a group of humans together and shot 15,000 grays at them, all dead, <laughs> like that, no. Big, big no, big yeah, no. Please but like with do bacteria, not do that. Do not do that, people. Um, right, don't am- do it. It's amazing. My my wife is always telling me how microbes can survive anything. You know, they're essentially mm-hmm. almost impossible to wipe out because in there, there's always one that has some crazy strategy for how to handle the situation. So how do Hiding these- behind a grain of salt <laughs> the whole time. So how do these microbes do it? What is their mechanism? Do they have a shield the way tardigrades have? Or are they just dodging those radiation bullets or what's going on? Well, it was actually something that you mentioned earlier. So they have redundant DNA and extremely fast DNA repair mechanisms. So they're basically like little wolverines. So as the ionizing radiation breaks down its DNA, not only does it have redundant DNA, so it's like, hey, I have like several backups, so no sweat. It also is able to build back up the damaged DNA Mm -hmm. really quickly. So as these little tiny bullets are like blasting into the DNA, it's like, hey, you know, I'll just build that again. I got backups, no big deal. Everything's synced to Dropbox. (laughs) So, you know, delete it all you like. Exactly. It's like every little sister's horror story of like a big brother that's so fast at rebuilding his Legos that you can't knock it down fast <laughs> enough and he just like keeps rebuilding it. <laughs> so is that a personal story? Or is no, that like a, no, no, no. A general societal experience? <laughs> What's interesting is that there is a little bit of evidence that suggests that it may have stolen some of these capabilities from eukaryotic cells. So bacteria are not eukaryotes. They aren't in the same domain as animals and plants. It actually may have gotten some eukaryotic DNA through horizontal transfer of genes. So like basically if you're a little bacteria and you swallow up some foreign DNA, you can actually incorporate that into your own DNA. And like that may have had a role in it being able to have these really fast repair mechanisms and so it's it's very interesting it's kind of a similar story to the tardigrade where it's like mm-hmm. you know just like if you if you borrow dna from a bunch of different animals like sometimes you can find or not even animals it doesn't have to be an actual animal but if you borrow dna from other organisms ones that you are not even remotely related to it can actually benefit you so it's is this mediated through viruses and phages like the in- injecting new bits of dna it can, it definitely can be. Sometimes it's just directly these bacteria like engulfing something, wow. but it can be mediated by, by viruses injecting it into to their thing. Like basically if you get it in and the bacteria is different from an animal cell or even like a plant cell where it's like basically they just have all their stuff floating around like a big salad. So if they can get that in there, they can potentially use it. Uh, most of the time it's not going to be useful for them, but again... bacteria reproduce at an incredible Mm -hmm. race they've been around for hundreds of millions of years sorry probably billions billions yeah billions of years i'm i'm so bad at like time scale i'm like they've been around for thousands of years (laughs) no but they've been around for billions of years they reproduce so quickly the the this is one of the reasons they like can evolve these incredible survival strategies that seem really improbable because they've just had and so many opportunities to have this happen. And then if something bad happens, like they, they get a they eat a bad piece of DNA or they have a bad mutation, no sweat. There's like 
millions of new bacteria ready to right. to take over and right. try again. So yeah, it's it is this is why like I, I think when we we're like, well, why is like why is bacteria just like so hardy and so good? It's like they just they have an incredible capability of reproducing and um, have lived for such a long time that they they can basically cope with anything you yeah, throw at them. They can eat almost anything. My wife tells me this story about how they were trying to scrub bacteria and microbes from the outside of various uh, satellites and spaceships because they don't want to contaminate, you know, Mars or the moon or whatever with, with human life. And so they're spraying it with some stuff, some bleach stuff to kill everything. And they discover that it killed everything except for some new kind of microbe they'd have never seen before that eats bleach. And it's like, yum, <laughs> feed me more of that, you know? And there's, uh, you know, there are microbes living on the outside of the International Space Station. And uh, to imagine like ever ridding the world of microbes is, seems impossible. It's micro just being like, hey, kids, it's okay. It's safe to eat bleach. No, don't listen to him. <laughs> the one microbe that believed Donald Trump about that one, yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> hey, man, he's right. It's totally cool. <laughs> he's wearing like a dirty tank top. That's how I imagine this like yeah. sleazebag microbe. Yeah, it's it's uh, very incredible. It's like when you think about, well, well, why can't humans just have these crazy adaptations? Why why can't we just have DNA that protects itself from radiation? Well, like, you know, we've been around very short amount of time on Earth. Mm -hmm. We haven't typically had to deal with huge amounts of radiation until recently. Like, oops, that yeah. might have been on us yeah. too when we started to tinker around on the subatomic level. And and these, these backup copies, they cost, right? To have like extra right. strands of your DNA and all these repair mechanisms that slow things down. It costs a lot of, of energy. And so you could have it, but then you wouldn't have as much energy to run away from predators or, you know, fight against disease. And so we're sort of tuned to the amount of radiation we naturally get yes. here on earth. Yeah. And actually repairing DNA has a cost too, like because every time you repair DNA, there could be like a mistake yeah, made. So there exactly. could be an, a mutation, which a lot of, again, most mutations are either neutral or bad. So, you know, uh, it's while we need mutations to evolve, it's kind of like the thing that right now people are hearing like, oh, you know, the when a virus mutates, that's going to make the virus better. N not always. Like right. mutations just happen. That doesn't necessarily mean that's going to be good for the virus. I mean, take your computer code and you just randomly replace one piece with another piece. It's not going to work better usually. Right. right. It's usually just going to yeah. break. And so. Yeah, exactly. But like you, you reiterate that like, you know, millions of times over billions of years, like eventually you're going to get uh, basically a bacteria that eats bleach. Right. And as, as you were saying, these things reproduce so quickly that the search scale is so fast because they have generation yes. after generation after generation. And we're still like raising the first batch of kids. Right. So our response time is pretty slow. Yeah. And we're one of the longest living animals on, on Earth. There are some animals that can outlive us, but they're they're quite rare. Evolution really does seem to favor sort of these shorter lifespans, more frequent reproduction. But we just happen to find the evolutionary niche that favors longer lifespan, fewer offspring. But we make up for it by having this society that really has done an incredible amount to like being able to rule the planet because we've created the society. But that doesn't mean that we are the most hardy animal or right. hardy organism on the world. It just means that we've sort of clevered our way around all these near near misses with death. Thank you, mad scientists, right? Remember, <laughs> mad scientists have brought us all this quality of life, so. Exactly, yes. exactly. But uh, yeah, I mean, it is, it is an interesting, because like, 
I think when we think about radiation, it's I kind of just want to bring it back to what we talked about at the beginning. It's not like mad scientists leading the charge. Like you're not like out there going like, let's blow up a bunch of nuclear plants and see what happens. <laughs> no, I've never said that. That's true. I definitely have never said that. No, we do create tiny explosions, but they're really tiny. We smash like one proton against another proton uh, to see what happens. And it's very safe, deep underground and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, there are chances that the collisions we make could create a black hole that eats up the earth. But we're pretty sure mm. those chances are very, very small. How sure are you <laughs> on a scale of one to ten? If ten is very sure, then ten. Um, because, okay. you know, right, these particles good. hit us from Earth. These particles are hitting Earth all the time from space at much higher energies. And so if two particles colliding was going to create an Earth-eating black hole, it would have happened already billions of years okay. ago. Okay, yeah. So we're pretty safe. Yeah, that's what they all say right before an Earth-eating black hole <laughs> opens up. Well, we have never yet created an Earth-eating black hole. So our track record that's is true. perfect. And that's it's actually, true. This... Days, days without creating an <laughs> Earth-eating black hole. <laughs> There's a website you can check. It's called Has the Large Hadron Collider Destroyed the World Yet? dot com, and we promise mm. to keep it always up to date. Okay, yeah, that's so good. There's that. a very brief window when that website's actually <laughs> going to be useful. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, these things all have expiration dates on them. Yes, that's true. That is true. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Daniel. I, I thought this was so great because I think. It's sometimes hard to think about like, well, wait, what does physics have to do with animals, especially like particle physics? Mm -hmm. Like, okay, I can think about the physics of like a kangaroo jump, but what, what the heck does particle physics have to do with animals and, and evolution? And it's, but it's all so interlinked. I mean, animals are made out of particles. Everything's hey. made out of particles. Exactly. Particle physics is the foundation of everything, man. Yeah. What about, wait, what about a piece of toast? Is that <laughs> particles or? Yeah. Little, made, made out of little Tostino particles. Mm -hmm. Tostinos. <laughs> <laughs> no, what about a... combos? Combos can't be made out of particles. No, those are not explained by physics. They're too delicious. It's just a mystery right. to science. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're yeah. from a different universe. And it's just like. <laughs> no, I, I got into particle physics because I thought it was fascinating that you could like tear apart everything in the universe, me and you and lava and we're all made out of the same particles just wow. in different arrangements even the rest you heard it here same. first folks he wants to tear everything in the universe <laughs> apart and he's not a mad scientist conceptually tear it apart Conce okay um, sure yeah. sure thing <laughs> <laughs> well so you got you have a podcast that is called daniel and jorge explain the universe and what do you guys do on that podcast uh well we try to explain the universe we talk about okay, little particles yeah. we talk about supernovas we talk about black holes we talk about stars within other stars we talk about all the things that science has understood but mostly we talk about the things that science has not understood like what are the questions that science is asking right now about the nature of our universe and i think people will be surprised to discover that most of the big questions we really have no clue about like how big is the universe what is it made out of all this stuff we're really just beginning to get started to understand what are the answers and even what are the right questions i love yeah i love that uh, and I, I was listening to one of your episodes i love the uh, reference to the uh, douglas adams like the 42 like you you can't get you you can't just ask like what's the meaning of life because yeah. then you get some kind of bizarre answer it's like well you can't interpret that you're not asking the right question yeah, exactly. but yeah it's i know that for some interpretations of that is that it's scary that we don't know that much about the universe but to me it's actually really comforting because if we already knew everything it's like <laughs> well 
okay, then that's that's that. But not knowing stuff, I think, is not only exciting because it's like there's science isn't over. It feels like oh, we already have iPhones. Like what more can science do? <laughs> but there's so many discoveries to be made Absolutely. and so many things we don't know and questions. Questions we don't even know how to ask yet, which is and hard to think about. Like we don't, there are questions out there we can't even think to ask, and that's incredible. So I highly recommend uh, that podcast, Thank Daniel you. and Jorge explain the universe. It's wonderful. And where can people find you? You got anything else to plug? Any any anywhere people can bother you? Any office hours you want to <laughs> open up to the public? Um, well, our podcast is uh, produced by iHeartMedia, so you can find it there on iHeartMedia with them, app, yeah, <laughs> um, or anywhere you get your podcasts, of course. And we wrote a book together called uh, "We Have No Idea," which is about this concept that we're just beginning to make discoveries in science, and that in a hundred years people will look back and sort of laugh at our latest ideas, our notions for how the universe might work, and try to give you a preview for what we might discover in the next few hundred years. And uh, you joke about office hours, but I am a working professor. I teach and have office hours. And I have had podcast listeners look up my office hours and come on in from the street. This is pre-pandemic days to ask me questions about dark matter and whatever. So if you have questions and you want them answered, listen to our podcast. We also answer listener questions. Well, once once we've we've gotten through these pandemic times, I am just going to come over unannounced, <laughs> have all these questions. Drop on in. You're very welcome. <laughs> Uh, so thanks very much for having me on your podcast. I learned a lot about biology and radiation and crazy birds. Uh, so thanks very much. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I learned a lot about radiation and physics <laughs> because surprisingly, I don't know all that much about a lot of things. And we have three <laughs> new Netflix shows to pitch. Uh, that's true. That's true. One of them was Tardigrades in high school. Again, Netflix, Quibi, get back at us. <laughs> Yeah, thank you guys so much for listening. If you want to rate, subscribe, download, there's a variety of buttons that you can press that interact with the podcast. And that actually really helps me. It teaches the robots that run these algorithms like, hey, this podcast is good. And it also makes me feel really good. I read all of your reviews. I look at like all of the all of the new new ratings and, and I read them and it just like I love it when I get feedback from you guys. Um, and thank you to the Space Cossacks for their super groovy song, Ex Illumina. Creature Feature is a production of iHeartRadio. To listen to more podcasts like the one you just heard, or to listen to Daniel and Jorge explain the universe, check out the iHeartRadio website, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your ding-ding podcasts. See you next Wednesday! This episode brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Director Wes Ball breathes new life into the epic franchise. As a ruthless king attempts to build his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape begins a journey to fight for a future for apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX on May 10th and theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. 
To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now.